Hey, this is Dan, just dropping you a quick line before you start this episode to let you know a couple of things. What you're about to listen to is one of the classic best of episodes of Assorted Goods in its older format. And by older format, I mean the sandbox and completely disorganized style that Assorted Goods was for its first few years of existence. Now, since then, the feed has been cleaned up and there's 12 of these classic episodes. And you should know, if you're a new listener, that these episodes are not really what the show is now. But they're still good and they're still worth listening to. But just be warned that if you're looking to get into assorted goods as it is now, that you probably want to go to the latest episode in your feed. Start listening from there. Throughout the episode, you might hear certain things get mentioned, like the website or the social media. Now, those have changed. So don't go chasing those websites or links after the episode. Go to these ones instead. The website has now disinformed.ca, CA for, you know, Canadians like me. And that's where you can find all the assorted good stuff that is mentioned in these episodes. You can find the source lists and additional information. They have all moved to there. In terms of emailing, you can email me now with the new email, dan at disinformed.ca. And if you want to follow on social media, Twitter and Instagram, the new handles are at disinformeddan. And hey, look, all three of those are kind of similar with each other, creating some sort of uh, continuity. People tell me that's important. But anyways, whether you're a new listener or a returning listener, I hope you enjoy this classic episode of Assorted Goods. And then I hope you subscribe to the show and come along for the ride with the new episodes as well. And as always, thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome to Assorted Goods, the Amateur's Guide to World Events. I'm Dan, your host. Thanks so much for stopping by for this episode. All things considered, I appreciate you giving me the time to talk your ear off for a little while. It's been about a month since my last episode. Has anything changed in the last month? I haven't noticed. Well, seriously, it's felt like it's been 40 years since my last episode. I almost forgot how to do it. To be honest, I haven't really been able to sink the mental energy into this in the last month. I mean, understandably, I know we're all a little distracted, but happy to be back, get another episode out, see if I can still figure out how to do this. After the last episode, I was also, well, not pleased with how it turned out. I don't know, I guess I got high standards for myself or something, but I felt like I could use a little retooling with the show, see if there's sort of a different approach I could take. So maybe things will switch up. This episode here today is a bit different, and it's not a usual collection of stories. I guess you could say... This one is kind of one of the deep dive episodes I would do, but even that doesn't totally feel correct because I didn't mean for it to be that way. This episode actually started with a news story I was going to use in a collection, and then it just evolved and turned into a bit of a rabbit hole story where all of a sudden I found myself chasing a bunch of different threads and came up with a whole episode just like that. So I hope you'll settle in and join me for this strange ride we're going to go on here today, okay? Also... If you haven't noticed, Assorted Goods has a new logo, some new branding, and that goes for the website as well, which has also been redesigned a little bit. Let me know what you think. So far, the feedback has been pretty positive, and I'm very proud of myself. So, again, let me know. Now, back to the episode at hand here. I didn't really do a good job of introducing it, now did I? But the story here today starts with Twitter, and some shakeups that are going on behind the scenes at the very top of the company but there's a lot more to this story than that. So hang in there. I'm going to keep you in suspense just a little bit. Now, on the last episode, I also forgot to mention that I recently did a guest spot, and although it's been, well, a few weeks since that guest spot, I feel like I should promote it anyway. I had the chance to go on a podcast called I Saw It on Linden Street, which is a film podcast where host Chris Roberts takes a look at some old cult classic films and then does a really good job of diving deep into them. Anyways, I contributed a segment to his episode on the 1976 classic movie, Assault on Precinct 13. It was a ton of fun, it was a fun movie to watch, and it was a fun segment to record. So check that episode out as well of I Saw It on Linden Street. 
think you can find that anywhere you can find podcasts just like assorted goods also of course as always find assorted goods on instagram twitter we even have a facebook page now Ooh, serious and of course there's the website assortedgoodspod.com reach out give feedback send over a story if you can find anything in the news that isn't related to coronavirus good luck if you're able to do that and uh let yourself be heard anyways enough of this rambling intro let's get into the show it's good to be back Hope you're all settled in and cozy for this episode. And like I said in the intro, we're going to begin today talking about Twitter. Twitter, shrinking your ability to read for over 10 years. Now, Twitter is something that I've had an on-again, off-again relationship with over time. We had a fling when I was in college, but we went our separate ways. And now, we've come back together again at exactly the right time. Ah, it was meant to be. Now, mostly I use Twitter these days for this podcast right here connecting with other podcasters, begging people to listen to me. This show is how I got back into the Twitterverse a little over a year ago. Twitter is amazing and terrible at the same time. It's a mainline right into the veins of human insanity. But that's what I've come to appreciate about Twitter. It's crazy and raw, but it's simple and full of potential. Either that or I'm just justifying my current form of social media addiction. Whatever the case... It connects people, and like other social media sites, that connectivity gives it power in the world. People can make connections en masse, get behind common ideas, big and small, grow movements over time. The possibilities are endless, as are the memes. And I'm going to be honest here. This whole story started with a single article, which I'll get back to later on, and things just sort of grew from there. But that initial article got me thinking about a few things. One... How did Twitter start? They made a movie about Facebook's origins, but this curious doe brain of mine wanted to know what the deal was. But also, I wanted to know a little more about the person at the head of Twitter. Because like I said, Twitter these days has real pull. Political movements have been sparked and grown thanks to hashtags. Sometimes it seems like the power of a network like this is both overestimated and underestimated at the same time. Whatever the case, it's not something to be ignored. So you would think that whoever is in charge of Twitter is someone who, just by the title, would be pretty important, and their actions would carry quite a lot of weight. But unlike the recognizable names and faces of guys like Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, or even Amazon's Jeff Bezos, the current head of Twitter is someone whose public persona is much more discreet. Be honest here. Do you know the name of Twitter's CEO? I'll give you a second to think. So, did you get it? Honestly, no sweat if you didn't. This is somebody who's much more low-key for someone who has such a serious job. But the guy we're talking about here is Jack Dorsey. And Dorsey moved to California at the turn of the millennium with ideas of creating an online status slash instant messaging service, essentially what is Twitter. Early on, he was working on an online dispatch service for taxis and couriers, something that clearly was a bit ahead of its time seeing as how big things like Uber are these days. He was even working in a coffee shop while programming on the side a little later on. Around the same time, Google, still on its way to world domination, had bought out some smaller tech startups. And as a result, a guy named Evan Williams, whose company Blogger got purchased by Google, had a ton of cash to take on something new. So Williams, along with his neighbor Noah Glass and his Google co-worker Biz Stone, great name by the way, but these three guys formed a company called Odeo. And essentially what Odeo's aim was, was that they wanted to create a simple uploading and networking service for podcasting in 2006. Talk about ahead of its time, seeing as how there's podcasting startups all over the place these days. Anyways, Odeo failed after Apple announced that they would be adding podcasting to their newly dominant iTunes service, where, of course, by the way, you can rate and review assorted goods. Thank you in advance. But the story goes that around this time, Dorsey met Evan Williams while working at that coffee shop. He ended up sending his resume over to Williams and got a job at Odeo, before the site was sold off and eventually closed down some years later. But these events brought together the team that would soon create Twitter. Now apparently what happened was that 
in 2006, as Odeo was slowly sinking, employees were asked to work on their own ideas and side projects. Then, the heads of Odeo looked over everyone's creations, and Dorsey, who finally had the chance to whip up his status update slash instant messaging concept, impressed them the most. Noah Glass would get fired from Odeo, and then Williams, Dorsey, and Biz Stone would buy up the rest of Odeo's controlling shares, shake things up, and then boom, Twitter is born. Oh, a beautiful new baby tech company. But this was based off of Dorsey's concept, and within a year, Twitter is hot. Dorsey becomes the company's first CEO, a ton of venture capital funding is secured, and the platform grows. Over the next couple of years, though, things move quickly. Dorsey, after about a year, is removed from being the CEO in roughly 2008. He's accused of mismanaging issues with Twitter's servers, and also, as the years have gone on, stories have come out that Dorsey was rumored to be constantly leaving work early to pursue other interests, including yoga classes and attending fashion design courses. Can you blame him? I mean, that rich, that young? I'd probably get a little distracted, too. Now, he would remain part of the company, but merely in a ceremonial role that held no real power, for the time being, at least. There was a lot that happened at Twitter as it grew. And now, the point of the story wasn't really to be a rundown of Twitter's history, but I will at least give you some highlights. For instance, in 2007, the hashtag was created, and the world was never the same. And in 2009... Actor Ashton Kutcher and CNN were in a race to be the first account to reach 1 million followers, while Evan Williams went on Oprah, and the attention of both those events booms Twitter's user base. If only I could get some Oprah attention. What's a guy got to do around here? Now, the following few years includes Twitter's first involvement with political movements, and a removal of the remaining two founders. Evan Williams, who was removed as CEO by the company's board of directors in 2010, and Biz Stone who would leave the company shortly after, leaving the CEO title in the hands of a man named Dick Costello, while Jack Dorsey was brought back in to be the executive chairman of Twitter's board, making moves once again. The understanding was apparently that sooner or later the company would be handed back over to Dorsey. And now, I'm not a business world person, if you can guess, but I think I've got a little bit of an idea of how some of this stuff works. Board control is everything. Garnering support amongst shareholders is how changes get made. It really is just all boardroom politics. You know, a little ass-kissing and bribery, I assume. Now, what set the stage for all this is that there was apparently uneasiness between Jack Dorsey and Evan Williams, Dorsey believing he was never given proper credit for Twitter's creation, while Williams and Stone were taking all the glory after Dorsey's initial removal. Some research I've done has suggested that the removal of Williams as CEO in 2011 was in fact partly due to Dorsey making a play from his ceremonial position to garner support. Thus, why Dick Costello was made CEO, and then there was the understanding that Dorsey would eventually take over. A little chess move planned right there. Now over the next couple of years, and we're talking roughly 2011 to 2015, Twitter would begin to look to make money and grow. Sponsored ads, which looked just like regular posts, began in 2010, and became Twitter's main source of advertising revenue. The logo was redesigned, always good to come up with a new look. Take a look at a sort of goods new logo. Wink, wink. Now, the number of users surpassed 200 million in 2011. The current format of the endless timeline would be created. The platform really begins to become what it is now. But there is a problem amongst all this and it plays heavily into the politics of the company's board. Can you guess what the big thing is? Come on, you know it. That's right, money. All about the Benjamins, baby. But Twitter still struggles to be a true money maker at this point. And in the world of tech companies, you better be super ultra dumb rich. Making a little bit of change ain't enough. And since the business world demands that giant companies continue to make exciting moves, Twitter would go ahead and make a splash in 2012 when they make the move to buy Vine. Now, if you don't remember what Vine is, I don't blame you. I was never totally sure what the hell it was either. But Vine is pretty much what TikTok is right now. Did that not clear things up? Well, it's a place where short videos are shared to the world. Real simple. And Vine was a big deal back then. So buying it up seemed to be a good move, except 
Facebook had just bought and was currently building up at this time, Instagram. And Snapchat was also starting to grow. And as it turned out, Vine was quickly being pushed out by these new platforms. The purchase would end up being a bust for Twitter. And in 2013, still looking to grow the company, Twitter would decide to go public and start with a value of $31 billion in the public market. But over the following couple of years, issues with profitability would continue. Share prices would drop by almost 20% after their initial public offering. And Dick Costello would step down as CEO in 2015, then opening the door at last for Jack Dorsey to step back in, which he does, and is the position he has held since. So it's been a bit of a roller coaster for Twitter, but that's any booming company really, especially one so in the mainstream vein of our social world. Before Dorsey came back as CEO for Twitter, he managed to start another highly successful company, Square which is the little payment things that small businesses have. Like, okay, have you ever been to like a fair or like a small market where there's not really like an easily accessible electricity and debit machines and all that stuff? So they have these little makeshift ones like on a phone with a little white square thing attached. Yeah, that thing. That's the other company Dorsey founded. And currently, he's CEO of both Square and Twitter. And I mean, wow. I can't even motivate myself to write and record a couple podcast episodes a month. I need some better wiring up in this brain of mine. Anyways, now, since 2015, there's been, you know, a few things that have happened in the world. Twitter would come under fire for its role in the American election of 2016. Dorsey would testify before the United States Congress, along with Mark Zuckerberg, in regards to the role of misinformation on their platforms. All the while, a problem still remained for the old tweeter, yeah, not enough of that. Twitter still doesn't make anywhere near the money that other platforms do. Get this. In the final three months of 2019, Facebook made $21 billion in advertising money. Twitter? $1 billion. Pfft, only a billion. Freaking losers. But, well, that is kind of the sentiment for people who hold stock in Twitter. And I mean literal stocks. Imagine sitting there and thinking, how come these Facebook assholes are making all this dough and we're just middling along here with our lonely one billion? So, okay, by this point, you might just be thinking, where are you going with all this? Oh, didn't I mention that I've decided to change the show to nothing but aimless rambling about topics? No, 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 I promise there's a point, I think. And honestly, isn't kind of aimless rambling what I do anyways? Oh my god, what is this show? Anyway, back on topic. Is this really just a Twitter history lesson? Well, yeah, a little bit, just now. And no, you'll see. I'm bringing you along the journey I went on for this whole story. And I wanted to lay a little backstory for Twitter because I know there's a lot of listeners who use it. And if you don't, well, congratulations. But it is still valuable to understand a little bit about how things have developed over the years for such an influential social media tool. This is also an opportunity for me to call back to a previous episode of Assorted Goods. In episode 25, I talked a bit about stock buybacks, diving into how big companies like this do things, and how fixated they are on making more and more and more and more money. And I'm starting to find that I'm actually kind of interested in these things, especially since companies like this are so big, and they hold so much power. And hey, this is Assorted Goods. We're here to learn some random stuff and see if we feel any smarter. Do you feel any smarter? Anyways, Jack Dorsey may have been the savior for Twitter years ago, but times have changed. That admiration that members of Twitter's board may have had for the prodigal son of the Twitterverse has worn off. It's simply too hard to ignore the lack of billions of dollars raining down on everyone who holds stock. Ah, sweet, delicious money. All of this, though, brings us to the next step along this strange path we're on this episode, which is actually the place where all of this began for me, the initial story that got me researching and writing all of this. As it turns out, over the past couple of months, Jack Dorsey's role as CEO of Twitter has come into question, since there's been a movement amongst Twitter's shareholders that had the potential to overthrow Dorsey as CEO. Now again, in that episode about stock buybacks, we also talked about how in the 1980s there was a trend of corporate raiding, which was where outside investors would buy up stock of a company to move in and try to force changes. 
moves that could be referred to as hostile takeovers. Well, that's kind of what's been taking place at Twitter over the past couple of months. With 2020 having some high-engagement-worthy news stories on the horizon, a presidential election, the Olympics, although those were cancelled just recently, and I guess, hell, even this coronavirus is a potential newsworthy event as well that can be taken advantage of. And it is kind of gross to say that, that the coronavirus is a potential moneymaker, but for media companies, it is. People are on edge and constantly looking for updates about the virus. Thus increasing user engagement. A crisis really can be an opportunity. Ugh, ugh, I feel gross saying it that way. But again, all of that potential is there for Twitter to capitalize on it, but there doesn't appear to still be a clear strategy or clear leadership on how to take advantage of all of it and finally turn Twitter into a profit machine. So of course, investors are not happy. They worry that Dorsey is too preoccupied with his second company and his personal interests. Dorsey apparently likes to travel. He was planning on going to Africa for a few months of the year, although those plans have also apparently changed with, you know, the current state of affairs here on planet Earth. But the feeling is that Dorsey's leadership is failing Twitter and leaving a ton of money on the table. User numbers are in constant flux, share prices are dipping, in fact, the share price is actually now lower than when Dorsey took over as CEO again in 2015. It's hard to deny Twitter is at a critical moment in its history. I mean, look, I know close to nothing about business, and even I can see that. The advertising problem is a big one, and one that clashes with Twitter's basic setup. Now, if you don't use Twitter, it's a pretty simple design, and ads tend to stick out. Not to mention, any advertising has to be small and concise, which limits the advertiser's options. To vastly expand advertising on Twitter would be pretty clear to users, and may undermine Twitter's fairly loyal user base. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. And maybe I should just butt in here for a moment to point out that what I'm trying to say here is that with everything being as crazy as it is at this moment, a leadership shakeup at a highly influential social media platform is something worth keeping an eye on. As the company goes, so do the possibilities for the influence on, and even manipulation of, public discourse. It really does matter. Jack Dorsey is a low-key guy who likes simplicity, and has made moves in the past to try to fix some of Twitter's ills, although not with a lot of success. So, a move is being made on Jack Dorsey's job as CEO, much like a move was made on his old rival and co-founder Evan Williams some years before, and as is the case probably at all sorts of giant companies all over the globe literally all the time. Politics is always in play. That being said, enter Elliot Management. Ah, a new character in this story. Now, this is a massive $40 billion hedge fund that invests in companies all over the globe and does so with the aim of changing things at these companies, whether they like it or not. Sounds a little like a corporate raider. Well, they kind of are, although they certainly wouldn't describe themselves as that. Corporate types are always excellent at sugarcoating things. Elliott Management Corporation, or EMC, is the spearhead that led this attempted coup of Jack Dorsey at Twitter, and they've been at this kind of stuff for decades with successful moves on companies like eBay, AT&T, and even Japan's massive banking conglomerate SoftBank. When EMC makes a move, things almost always get shaken up, one way or the other. And this is where I fell even further down the rabbit hole. I started researching a whole lot of new things and found the second half of this episode, a perfect mix of circumstances for assorted goods. But Elliott Management is what is described as an activist investor firm. Basically, they see the potential for change at a company, they buy in, and then they make those changes, whether passively or aggressively. Again, sounds like a rebranding of classic corporate raider techniques. But of course, activist investors all over the globe wouldn't call themselves that. And I mean, of course not. Business folk are specially trained at things like public relations, image management, you know, the fine art of bullshittery. Now, maybe I'm being a bit harsh, but hey, this is my show, and I am God here.
Anyways, Elliott Management made its move on Twitter these past couple of months. Twitter stock price has always been bouncing between stagnant and dipping lower in recent times, which is kind of the situation that EMC likes to take advantage of. The way they describe it, they identify companies that have lower share values, and then they come in to help those companies become more profitable. Aww, they're so considerate. And at the head of Elliott Management is a man named Paul Singer, and he is the all-powerful lord of this financial battering ram of a company. Shit, the company takes after Singer's middle name. And Pauly Boy here is an interesting figure himself, one of the top donors to the Republican Party in America. And, I mean, he has had a hand in presidential, Senate, and congressional races across America for years. Singer is a vehement opposer to both taxing the top 1% and to any sort of regulation or rules being placed on Wall Street and banks, which is, of course, one of the main reasons he funds political campaigns. Basically, if you run for office on a platform of not taxing the wealthy, you could find your bank account getting a little bit fatter itself. Strangely enough, though, Singer is also apparently a major supporter of LGBTQ rights in America. So he's a bit of a mixed bag, I guess you could say. But let's roll things back here and get back to that whole, you know, buying politicians thing. And let's have a little fun and connect a couple dots. So follow me along here. In 2008, the financial crash happened, and the banks were responsible for that, although they weren't really punished. But President Barack Obama's administration created what was called the Dodd-Frank Act, which created a long and confusing list of regulations on banks and Wall Street, the kind of thing that Singer would hate. Around the same time, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was created, which aims to keep regular people from being cornholed by big banks. Basically, these pieces of legislation were some of their actual punishments. Republican lawmakers, though, don't like the Dodd-Frank Act. President Orange Peel and his Republican colleagues have taken aim at Dodd-Frank and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau over the past couple of years. And although some rules have been rolled back, both are still in place. But you see, and again, follow me here, Paul Singer has billions at his disposal. He supports Republican politics. Most politicians try to undermine the laws that get enforced on people like Paul Singer. I put my tinfoil hat on, except these guys don't really try to hide all their bullshittery. You just don't notice it until you see all the pieces together. But anyways, let's continue on here. Tangent over. Singer is a guy who, I mean, seriously, Google this guy. He looks like he was created in the billionaire banker factory, but he's an immensely powerful man. If anybody listened to this show, he'd probably sue me into oblivion. But people also don't really know anything about Paul Singer. He's not a household name. We focus so much on obvious rich guys like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, and we miss out on the private jet loads of more discreet people working to change pieces of our world behind the scenes. There's actually a pretty good book about stuff like this, and it's one that I believe I've mentioned before on the pod but it's called Dark Money by Jane Mayer, and it will introduce you to a wide variety of exceedingly wealthy people that you've literally never heard of in your life who spent their lives accumulating as much wealth as possible and then using it to shape politics, economics, and society as a whole. And don't read that book if you've got high blood pressure, because I'm telling you, their tactics are infuriating to say the least. But I'm getting carried away again, so let's get back on topic here. And in the world of investments, there's what's called venture capitalism, a term I used earlier in the episode and is probably one you've heard before as well. Basically, that's when people with a lot of dough invest in new companies and try to get in on the ground floor of new ideas. Twitter had a couple rounds of fundraising through venture capital when they were new. But what EMC does, this activist investing as it's called, has been given another name, and that's vulture capitalism. What vultures do is what I've described to you so far. They look for companies that are in trouble, and they wait until they're weak, and more so when the share price dips. And then they buy in, and then they start messing shit up until the company is remade in their image. Modern corporate rating. So, okay, vultures moved in on the Tweety Birds at Twitter, but what happened? Well, in just the last week or so, 
Twitter and Jack Dorsey settled, so to speak, with EMC and came to an agreement about how to move forward. Jack Dorsey will remain as CEO, for now, but Twitter has agreed to appoint three new members to its board of directors, including a representative from Elliott Management. Twitter will apparently also create a committee to, quote, review leadership and create a succession plan, meaning that Dorsey's survival on this move on his position really is likely only temporary, possibly a move to keep things constant for the moment while the world's current state of affairs blows over. On top of all that, a second private investment company, Silver Lake Partners, will invest a billion dollars into Twitter, and that money will be used to carry out... (laughs) a stock buyback man i just i can't even deal with some of these suit and tie assholes sometimes man yeah so twitter's ceo survived by conceding a bunch of influence within the company and then agreeing to allow the new guys to carry out a cash grab stock buyback it actually kind of feels like a raid a bunch of outsiders boarded the ship and are plundering what they can before taking it over dorsey is safe For a brief moment, it looks like. And Twitter, my beloved realm of human psychosis? Well, at the moment, its future is still up in the air and yet to be decided. Okay, let's take a little bit of stock of where we're at right now. I said at the top of this episode that whoever is in charge of something like Twitter is someone who has a lot of power. Someone who can influence the foundation of a social network that has a great deal of pull over people's perception of the world. So, therefore, knowing who is making a move on Twitter's leadership is worthwhile. It can give us an idea of what motivations they may have. Or at least, their history can give us a heads up as to whether or not we should be somewhat concerned. The truth is, though, we haven't really gotten to know Elliott Management yet. Not actually. Because they've been vulturing for decades, and they're pretty damn good at it. Now, they're not the only company that was involved in the move on Twitter, but they may be the most influential. So, in the second half of this episode, we're going to dive into just a few stories of how EMC has not only put the squeeze on companies, but entire nations. And before we get to our halftime break here, just a heads up for you. I'm trying to be a little more involved with my fellow podcasters out there. I admit I do a subpar job most days. So this episode, and likely going forward, there's going to be a couple of short ads from some other shows out there. And they're great shows, so see if they sound like something you might be into, and then give them a listen. Alright? Okay. Lots more in the second half of the episode, so stick around. Assorted Goods will be right back. Bill, Connor, Steve, and we're Rage Against the Mainstream, your full-spectrum source for all things music, insight, and opinion. Join us every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for moments like these and more. George Harrison, famous for his uh, holiday single, Ding Dong, Ding Dong, and his (laughs) wife were attacked in their home during a robbery. U2's concert in Rome sets off earthquake alarms as a result of noise level. Who cares? Who cares? Ja Rule, listen, bud, I'm going to tell you right now, go Google false advertising and see what happens as a result of a company that literally falsifies a brand. If you like what you just heard, you can find us on all of our social medias at RATM Podcast or wherever you stream podcasts. We hope to see you soon. Hi, everyone. Goldbuck Career is a weekly podcast focused on making short episodes about helping you sort things out. We're unique in the sense that we combine both personal growth and personal finance, exploring interesting topics such as setting a goal, mitigating procrastination, mindfulness meditation, exploring the mysteries of sleep, and on the other hand, tips on money managing, investing, and much more. If you are interested, find us on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and Twitter at GoldBlockCareer. Hope to see you soon. Hey, this is Josh with All the People You Should Know. Wait until you hear what critics are saying about this amazing history podcast. Well, critics haven't said anything about it yet, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't give it a try. Each week I rummage through human history to bring you the most important and interesting people you've probably never heard of. Check us out. Generally, released on Monday. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or any of the other places that you get your audio. Thanks. 
Hi, welcome back for the second half of the show. I hope you'll give those great podcasts a listen when you have the chance, by the way. There's so many shows out there, possibly better than this one, although I won't say. And I promise, they're all here to help keep you sane in these insane times. So shout out again to Rage Against the Mainstream, Goldblock Career, and all the people you should know. They're great shows, and they've been supportive of assorted goods, and I hope I can do the same for them. All right, anyways, let's jump back into our story here. And so the first half of the episode was, well, I guess you could call it phase one of this story. And in the second half here, we're going to focus on a couple of incidents involving Elliott management and their brand of vulture capitalism. Now, to be clear, there are actually a bunch of stories involving them, their investments and their pressure campaigns that they've mounted all over the world. But since there are so many, and since I'm just trying to for once get one episode out, I'm just going to focus on a couple of stories. The first has to do with the country of Argentina, a nation of about 45 million people who, around the turn of the millennium, had a terrible economic crisis. Starting in about 1998, Argentina's economic growth slowed and then plummeted, and by 2001, the country was in an economic meltdown. Now, like so many things I mentioned on this show, you could probably do an entire episode or two on this story alone, because all the history and causes and ripple effects on this economic collapse Well, there's a lot to it. But of course, trying to keep things simple and streamlined here, so that's not what we're focusing on. But anyway, as Argentina began to put the brakes on their economic collapse, one thing the country needed to do was restructure their debts. Argentina simply couldn't pay the high interest loans back that they had, and they defaulted on roughly $80 billion in bonds. Now, all right, let me see if I can explain this in a way where I can manage not to confuse you. And, well not confuse myself. Super specific, complicated finance stuff? Not really my thing, obviously. But these bonds that they defaulted on, well, that's invested money that belongs to people. Easy, right? It's still a debt that is supposed to be paid, but just like if you yourself went bankrupt, you couldn't pay back every dollar you owe, so you would restructure to ensure that at least something gets paid back under different terms. Well, that's what Argentina did. And in 2005, 76% of those bonds were settled and brought out of their default status, meaning that 76% of the money that Argentina owed was now even with the people who held those bonds. Following so far? God, I hope so. Anyways, five years later, in 2010, more restructuring was done, and the number was raised to over 91% of the defaulted bonds. Now, at that point, settled and square with the bondholders. Now, if you were someone who held bonds that Argentina defaulted on, first of all, how the hell did you find this podcast? But at that time, you could have, if you wanted to, sold that debt amount on a secondary market, basically selling the IOU from Argentina to someone else for a much lower price, and then letting whoever that person might be go about hoping to collect what was formerly owed to you. Now, you wouldn't get anywhere near what you were owed, but you would get something, And you do get to bail out on the whole messy situation there. Understandable. Well, this is where EMC came into the picture. And just another side note here for you, because this is kind of worth knowing. In the effort of keeping things simple, well, simple-ish, you know what I mean, I'm only going to refer to Elliott Management or EMC when I'm talking about all this stuff. In reality... EMC has dozens of subsidiary companies who have taken parts in all sorts of these financial moves. EMC is sort of the overarching umbrella corporation that fuels a bunch of these smaller firms who carry out their business. And in the Argentina case, it was one of those firms that took charge. But again, this is a show by a dummy, and possibly for some dummies too. So strictly in the spirit of simplicity, I'm just only going to refer to them all as EMC. Not factually correct, I'm sure, but whatever. Cool? If you're a stickler for the details, I'm sorry. Sue me. Again, if you work for EMC, you might. Okay, so what did EMC do? Well, they came in and bought up a huge amount of that Argentinian debt for pennies on the dollar. And since it's a multi-billion dollar financial juggernaut, waiting to cash in wasn't an issue, as long as they got their money's worth. Through the two rounds of debt restructuring in 2005 and 2010, EMC, along with a group of fellow vultures, all refused to settle, becoming known as the holdouts in this process. Whereas other investors wanted to cut their losses and move on, 
these holdouts had other ideas. EMC and the Vultures would take the country of Argentina to court and fought tooth and nail to force the nation to pay their debt that, remember, EMC had purchased from other debt holders for way below its value. They went to court to get Argentina to pay them back in full. And this legal battle lasted years, over a decade actually. It was only settled in 2016. EMC and the other holdouts believed that they were in a war with Argentina. It's actually described that way in some of the research I did. And they would relentlessly pursue the collection of this debt to its full extent within the boundaries of the law. Except, well, when you're as wealthy as some of these vulture firms are, those legal boundaries can get pretty wide. Now, some other holdouts settled along the way, but EMC took it down to the final settlement. They were all in on this one. And I guess when you think you're at war, you really want to win all out. And there are some great extra little pieces to this whole story, too. In 2012, in the middle of this long legal battle between Argentina and Elliot, Argentina had a naval ship docked in Ghana, the West African nation. Elliot management, backed by a recent court order that bolstered their claim to the funds they were owed by Argentina, then filed a court order with the government in Ghana, which was approved. And as a result, the Argentinian naval ship was detained while it was docked. Keep in mind, again, it was docked in another country in another continent, and it was detained by an investment firm from America. But wait, there's more. In 2007, the Argentinian equivalent of Air Force One, their presidential plane, was scheduled to make a stop in America for pilot training and some routine maintenance. EMC was planning on detaining that plane as well, but word got back to the Argentine government and they canceled their trip. A couple years after that, at a massive book fair in Germany, Argentina was preparing to set up a booth to display works of literature and art, but they ended up not doing so because they were worried their belongings were about to be seized. The presidential airplane would also have to cancel another trip later on to Brazil because they were again told that the plane would be taken. EMC was chasing anything Argentinian around the world, appealing to every court they could to try to take anything they could in order to leverage Argentina to pay their debts. It's a little mobsterish, isn't it? Well, that's up to you, the listener, to decide, I guess. But how did they manage to do this kind of stuff? Well, around the world, it's just up to filing a proper legal challenge with an official court, and then hoping you have a favorable attitude from those court officials. As for in America, remember when I said that Paul Singer, the head of EMC, is one of the largest sources of political donations to the Republican Party in America? Well, that money, unsurprisingly, bought influence. And that political influence allowed him to back a political lobbying group throughout the course of this decade-long court conflict with Argentina. That lobbying group was called Task Force Argentina. I swear to God, that's actually the stupid, corny-ass name they gave it. Task Force Argentina. Anyways, but these folks were a big part of getting the legal backing they needed to continue to harass the government of Argentina, which they did so by lobbying courts and the United States Congress to allow them to pursue their debts however they saw fit. Political corruption in America? <gasps> Never. But get this. The task force Argentina hired people to hand out nasty pamphlets when the Argentinian president visited Washington, D.C. in 2012, in which the handouts argued that the current Argentine government should be overthrown, as well as, and this may be the best part of it, actually, on the day Argentina was celebrating their nation's day of independence, the task force left a giant blow-up rat in the doorway of the Argentinian embassy in Washington. Happy Independence Day! But wrap your mind around this one, too. An American government official was attempting to intimidate and undermine another nation's government so they could cash out. In the end, Elliott Management would make off with $2.4 billion from this whole ordeal, a 392% return on their initial investment when they bought up the debt on the cheap. As you can see, pass judgment on their tactics all you want, and believe me, I definitely am, but they are certainly effective at what they do. And I guess, therefore, they really wouldn't give a flying fuck what I think. The thing is, though, Argentina has been in a cycle of economic growth and then depressions for decades. 
At the moment, they are on the tail end of a period of prosperity, and it appears that Argentina's economy is shrinking once again, just a few years after finally getting out of this whole debt ordeal. But why what Elliott and other vulture firms did is so shitty is because by holding out on settling the debt, it kept Argentina in default and therefore didn't allow the nation to fully re-enter the global financial markets until all the court battles were finally over. And let's just think about this one again. A hedge fund, a group of investors that aim to continuously make more and more and more and more money, were able to stifle the economic potential of a nation of over 40 million people. A couple of points I have to concede, though. For one, the ruling government of Argentina for over a decade was a bit defiant towards international financial markets. And, not to paint EMC as pure evil, hedge funds like them are often where a lot of normal stuff takes place, like where regular people see their retirement funds grow, for example. But it does feel a little bit hard to ignore that some of this growth comes at the expense of so many others. But that nasty reality is kind of a central feature of our capitalist system, which just makes me think, yikes. Oh, Dan the Revolutionary over here. That's right, man. Fight the power. But the fact that an investment firm can harass a nation, and I mean that is essentially what happened here, was a lesson for me. And I don't know how the world really works, I guess, being too dramatic. Let's just do a semi-recap. Basically, Argentina fell into economic struggles, made a serious attempt to settle and restructure their debts so that they could rebuild which a strong majority of the debt holders agreed to. But a small section of them, including Elliot, held out and endlessly chased down and harassed the Argentinian government every way they could in order to put the screws to the nation. And all of this was done in an effort to squeeze Argentina every dollar they could get, backed by legal challenges and court orders no matter how far they had to go, no matter how long it took. And again, this was debt that EMC had nothing to do with when Argentina collapsed at the turn of the millennium. They swooped in years after, bought the debt from a previous holder on the cheap, and then used their power and influence to try to get the original debt paid back in full. Vulture capitalism. Preying on people in tough situations in order to make profits. And here's a bonus. The Argentina thing with EMC wasn't even the first time they did this. In the 90s, a similar situation unfolded with Elliott and Peru over their defaulted debts that mostly unfolded in a similar fashion. So yeah, they've had practice at this lovely tactic. Now, EMC's defense of these tactics is pretty much what you'd expect. They are, quote, upholding financial accountability, blah, 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 blah. We should just call it what it is. Shitty. Yes, people should be accountable, but when someone, or hell, an entire country hits rock bottom, to keep hammering them is just cruel. Especially when it wasn't even you who was owed in the first place. Vulture Capitalist paints a picture as a label, sure, but it is also really kick-you-when-you're-down capitalism. The debt rebuying and reselling thing does also happen on individual levels, and it really is just as shitty when that happens too, and ruthless and it leaves people even more ruined than they were before. But that's another can of worms entirely. What's crazy, though, is that in this case, Elliott management was seemingly more powerful than a nation of 45 million people. And to me, at least, that shows the real power of money. Shit, with enough of it, you can really do just about anything, just about anywhere. And with that, we're going to move on to our next story here. And like I said earlier, there were so many possibilities for stories to select when it comes to Elliot and their investments. Originally, for this second story of the second half, I was going to go with their role in the attempted merger of two massive South Korean companies, and how the ensuing boardroom politics left the president of South Korea and the vice president of Samsung both being sentenced to lengthy jail sentences. But to be honest... That is, in itself, a really complex story, although it's certainly juicy, but it has a lot of backdrop involving the basis of South Korean business and politics, and hey, maybe someday I'll swing back around to that one. That situation is actually still ongoing. Besides government leaders being jailed for disrupting the merger, Elliot is now currently suing South Korea for almost $800 million in damages, citing the government's corruption as the reason their investments failed. 
some serious money flying around. I'll leave a couple articles about that story in the source list, which you can find on assortedgoodspod.com a day or two after this episode drops. So, okay. I mean, look, I'm not kidding you. When it comes to EMC, Paul Singer, and the whole vulture capitalist way of doing business, there's an endless list of stories that I could have run with, all of which involve shady dealings, greed, and corruption. But since the first story there was about Argentina and was on a pretty large scale, I thought I'd narrow the focus because... Not every move by EMC is a billion-dollar, earth-shaking move. So for the second story of our second half, we're going to focus in on a role they played in another merger in America. Cabela's is a retailer in America that sells fishing and hunting gear. A pretty run-of-the-mill, outdoorsman type of store. Actually, I also learned that Cabela's makes those arcade games where you shoot deer with the big plastic rifles. You know the ones that I mean? You can find them in bars... Yeah, you know, stuff for hunting outdoors and indoors, apparently, for the motivated and lazy hunter. Because, sure, why not? Now, the company was reportedly making over a billion dollars a year in 2015, but they were also steadily losing operational income at an alarming rate. Cabela's decided to seek out potential options for how to proceed. The founder of Cabela's had died in 2014, and remaining family members had apparently sold stock and jumped ship, leaving the company without much direction. Lack of direction, stock prices and income stagnant, cacao, it's vulture time. So Elliot showed up, of course, and they bought 11% of the company. Another little side note, apparently the 10% mark is roughly what an investment firm needs to have serious pull, and that's what EMC typically aims for when they make a move. But anyways, EMC bought in, and then apparently pushed the board of Cabela's towards a merger with Bass Pro Shops, which is pretty much in the exact same business. A natural fit, really. And so, a year later, Bass Pro Shops announced their purchase of Cabela's. And the announcement, of course, caused Cabela's struggling stock price to skyrocket. And within just one week of the announcement of the sale, EMC and Paul Singer sold their shares, walking away with $90 million in profit. This is a pretty straightforward example of the vulture technique, I'd say. A much more simple one. And for EMC, this one was probably a layup, as opposed to the things like the decade-long battle they had with Argentina. But I mean, come on, you already know there has to be more to it. And there is, of course. Cabela's was headquartered in the town of Sydney, Nebraska. It was a classic American success story. A local business built into a billion-dollar empire. Sydney, Nebraska has a population of a little over 6,000, and Cabela's was the economic heart of this little American town. When the merger took place, it's estimated that 2,000 jobs were lost. 2,000 in a town of just over 6,000 people. But hold on, it's okay. They haven't lost 2,000 jobs yet. To this date, they've only lost 1,800 of them. Phew, close one. And when a major employer moves out of a small town like this, there's also the ripple effect on top of all that. Urban development projects now have less funding and get halted. Local businesses lose their customer bases. Property values plummet, which undercuts the equity people have in their homes and basically gives them a second punch in the gut. All things that have happened to Sydney. It's not just the headquarter office and the jobs that disappear, though. As time goes on, it's an erosion of a town's identity. And there's no actual dollar value you can place on that. And it's furthering the erosion of small towns all over North America. Small communities keep getting left behind in the name of economic growth. And that's coming from a big city snobby elite person like me. Now, of course, Elliot denies having any responsibility for what took place in Sydney, which is strange, but also very on brand. They argue that Cabela's was going to be sold anyway basically washing their hands of it. But it's a little hard to accept that simple answer. Maybe a sale was an option before Elliot got involved. But it is very likely that, considering the swift resale of stock by Singer and EMC after the merger announcement, that this was the outcome they were exactly looking for. And it's very unlikely that they were simple passengers along for the ride here. The strangest part of the story for me happened during the research. Turns out, just a couple of months ago, Fox News, 
the world's leader in news bullshittery, and one of their hosts, Tucker Carlson, a man I have a visceral and substantive hatred for, actually ran a segment in which they criticized Singer and EMC for exactly this whole event. Singer and EMC responded with the, hey, we didn't do nothing routine, but I, ugh, God damn it. I was actually on the same page as Tucker Carlson. Excuse me for a minute. Oh, I'm going to need a drink after that one. Oh, but yes, it appears our opinions are aligned. Excuse me. Somehow... This is an economic issue that apparently people on the furthest ends of the political spectrum can take issue with. Screwing the little guy seems to draw somewhat universal criticism. And I know there's a lot of nuance to this ordeal. I found a 300-page filing regarding the merger itself. And since this is a one-man podcast, there's no way in hell I actually read that. But does it matter? The specifics in this situation seem to muddy the waters a bit. Because the simple basics of what took place seem to tell a pretty clear story. Look, you know, I try to play the middleman here on this show, as much as possible at least. But really, in this economic system we have, is it such a dramatic thing to ask that regular working people get considered for a fucking minute? Seems like the more money you make, the more your moral lines tend to get a bit blurry. It seems to be an almost universal concept. But again... There are regular people out there who, you know, don't strive to rule the world or be stupidly wealthy, who just want solid work and a chance to live a decent life. And those people, they seem to get stepped on by some of these suit-wearing asshats. Sorry, trying to stay somewhat neutral. Further research gave me a whole lot of opinion pieces on this whole Cabela's merger deal. Some critical of EMC, others actually defensive, and others still... Weirdly, simply commenting on how resilient these small-town Nebraskans are, which seems real easy to point to when it's not your well-being and your future on the line. Supposedly, Sydney, Nebraska is still a town ready to put these hard-working folks back to work and build something new. And I'm sure that's true. But that seems like a lot more words, hot air, and not something tangible. Cabela's wasn't just a major employer. For Sydney, it was a point of pride, a homegrown business, a beating heart that boosted the community. Sure, yeah, someone else may move in, but those people would be outsiders. Who knows what their idea of prosperity might be for the people in a small Nebraska town? And I guarantee there's plenty of people who would tell me, hey, you know, this is just how the business world works. Sure, yeah, okay, congrats on getting your MBA, but... That's just hollow. Firms push money around, make a killing, and people get left in the dust. It is cruel, and it is immoral, whether that matters to you or not. So, I guess after this long journey of this episode, you might feel like I felt when I got to the end of it. That whole bit about Twitter at the start feels like a million years ago. But it really was me taking you along the same journey that I took when researching and writing all this. I feel like I've created a new genre of episode for myself, the rabbit hole deep dive. See if it happens again in the future anytime. And to be honest, this whole thing didn't really unfold the way I expected it to. So then, what was the point? What did we learn? Well, I'm going to draw things back to Twitter. I thought it was important for the millions of users out there to understand the forces that are working behind the scenes at the company. I say that as though any of them are actually listening to this podcast, but, you know, anyways... As management and therefore direction change for Twitter, so will the platform itself. And then who knows what it will become. But I hope that this has given you an idea of who's behind these moves, at least some of these moves in part. I can't honestly say that I came into this hoping to paint Elliott management as some sort of villain. My naive millennial anti-big money mindset probably predisposes me to think of him that way. But in the end, and after only these just couple of stories that I've told about them, they do really seem to be kind of shitty. But that's part of the reality of the business world, and the reality of how so much of our global economics actually functions. There's a lot of cash flying around all over, 
backroom deals, boardroom politics, all in the effort to accumulate more and more of that sweet, sweet money. And in the end, it seems again that regular people continue to have a harder time as a result of some of these moves that get made. So what can be done? I really have no flippin' clue. Money rules, so unless you have billions of your own, you can't sway people very much. Or stop these things from happening. So maybe awareness is a good start? Although I'm not naive enough to think awareness has that much of an effect. One thing I'm sure of, when it comes to Twitter, the moves they make in the future will probably be purely in the interest of making more money. Which means there will likely be a ramping up of advertising. And I mean a massive increase in that. And as a result, I would expect an even bigger increase in political misinformation, divisive issues that piss people off and therefore keep them coming back for more, and I would guess an overall decline in the quality of the platform. And that's just the way it goes, I guess. I hope I'm wrong, but I know too much now to have a positive outlook. Womp womp. Jeez. Thanks for the negative ending there, you dick. Well, tell me what you thought of all this. Is Elliot Management really an evil empire, or am I just in denial about the way the world works? Hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, or the website, assortedgoodspod.com, and let yourself be heard. Now, before we head to the outro, one thing that I want to include in each episode now is putting the good back in assorted goods, and lifting you back up after a bit of the insanity that is my episodes. With the new outro segment, Assorted Goodness. That's right. So, for our assorted goodness of this episode, there's no sports at the moment, which breaks my heart. I'm running out of things to procrastinate with instead of working on this podcast. So I thought I'd share some of the good things that athletes are doing in these tough times. There really is too many to cover, but I'll name some of the names anyway. NBA stars Zion Williamson, Blake Griffin, Kevin Love, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Rudy Gobert, they all pledged $100,000 each to pay the salaries of the workers at their team's respective stadiums. The Golden State Warriors pledged a million dollars for their arena's employees. Over 100 athletes have donated gear to be auctioned off for COVID-19 relief funds. Two players from my beloved LA Rams, Jared Goff and Andrew Whitworth, donated $250,000 to the Los Angeles Food Bank, which funded 2 million meals to help people through these times. Teams have provided financial aid to their building's workers all over professional sports. It's actually been really nice to see. I know the situation sucks, and it sucks as a huge sports fan to not have any of my favorite things, but we're all in this together, and no matter who you are, we could all use a hand. And, you know, helping people feels good, so don't be shy. Consider providing a donation if you can. I know how many people out there are facing uncertainty. So in that case, provide some support in other ways. Reach out to people. Check in on them. I know I've already driven my family half crazy with how much I've tried to keep in touch. Oh, and one more good sports person story that actually didn't have to do with the whole virus thing. But I found it through my travels through the interwebs anyway, so I thought I'd share. Apparently Charles Barkley... NBA Hall of Famer and eccentric TV personality, has decided to sell a bunch of his awards and trophies in order to fund the building of 20 affordable housing units in his hometown of Leeds, Alabama. Barkley says, quote, he doesn't need all that crap for people to know he's Charles Barkley. <laughs> so he says he'll let his daughter pick one item to keep, and then he's going to sell the rest for a good cause. Good on you, Chuck. And good on all the rest of the athletes out there giving back right now. Keep doing the right thing. Okay, that's all for this episode of Assorted Goods. I hope wherever you are that you are safe. I hope your hands are washed. And I hope that you are staying positive in a time like this. I haven't done a great job at the last one there, but I'm lucky to have a couple of patient people around me who are keeping me on the level. As always, reach out if you have any feedback, comments, or just reach out because you want to say hi. I'd love to hear from you. Remember to find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and hey, again, we're even on Facebook now which I guess means I'm totally legit. Also, of course, assortedgoodspod.com, where I leave some occasional goodies for you, and also the list of sources used to write the episode. Also, a big shout-out to the No Phony Podcast Network. They continue to be a huge base of support for me and for Assorted Goods, and without them, I don't know where I'd be. So thank you to them as always. 
Help support their shows and their fantastic people at nophonynetwork.com and on Twitter. Well, we still have Twitter. I kid. I kid. Now, all the credit for the writing of this episode goes to the hardworking journalists, academics, writers, editors, man, everybody out there who does much harder work than I do so that I am able to make a show like this. Thank you to everybody. Also, a huge thank you and a round of applause to all our medical staff, hospital workers, doctors, nurses, personal support workers, hospital admins, all essential workers, postal workers, grocery store workers, everybody out there right now who are going the extra mile to make sure that we're all taken care of in a time like this. Thank yous aren't enough, I know, but I'll say it anyway. Thank you all very much for everything you're doing. Okay, and thank you again for listening. All the best to you and yours. Take care of each other out there. I know we all need it. And you know what? I'll see you next time here on Assorted Goods, and we'll do this all again. Take care. is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. It really... uh, (laughs) Cut that out.